that might be. Yeah. 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 I did, thank you. How about you? Um, thank you, everyone. Time to start the meeting. We have roll call, please. Trustee Jensen? Here. Trustee DeVries? Here. Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Lawrence? We have a quorum. Thank you. And our next um, item is the approval of the minutes from October 11th. So moved. Second. Um, and I will agree, so those minutes are adopted. They were very well done, I must say. I, everything that was in there that I yeah. had mm-hmm. talked about. Um, and um, so our next item is from our Chief Human Resources Officer. Thank you. About the dashboard. Thank you, Trustees. Uh, Happy New Year. Uh, I'm glad to see you all back. Um, we're going to run through the dashboard. It's become obviously a regular item and drives a lot of our conversation um, in the HR committee as to not just how we're performing against the metrics that we've set, but also the work then that we're putting into action to try and sol- solve those problems. Uh, Del Vecchio, could you grab some uh, napkins? Thank you. Uh, oh. we've, we've got a leak. <laughs> we, we, no, sorry. No, no. Unrelated to yourself, if you can grab a napkin. Thank you very much. Sorry about that. Thanks, Tony. Okay. Um, so I'll run through this quickly, and then we'll get to the questions part, and then the actions that, that we're um, following to try and correct some of the issues that we've identified. So you'll see that um, the third column in the, is the uh, previous quarter, and the fourth column is the current quarter. We've had a, a, a 10 day, uh, roughly about a 10 day improvement in time to start. So a really big improvement from the recruitment department. Lisa Marie Mayer, who's our director of talent, will be talking later about the FTE process, and her team has worked really well, uh, both internally with our external advertising, and also with the uh, employee health department, who's put a lot of work into making slots available, and the uh, learning and development department who do orientation. So we're really starting to hit a cadence where we feel we've, we've made significant improvements. Ten days a big leap forward. Um, and then on the time to start, which is around about 19 days right now, 19.48 days, that's about target. And so it's fluctuated up a little bit from 18.22 days. Those sort of change based on people's notice periods and how quickly we can get them on board. But we're starting to see, we've seen over successive months now, improvements in the time to, to acceptance. And we've seen a fairly standard um, pattern around the time to start, which is the time after someone's accepted before they come into the organization. So we think we've stabilized that part and we've improved significantly on on the time to acceptance of offer. So that's helping us significantly in terms of getting people into the workplace. Um, Next, um, I'll talk a little bit about the the data that we deal with around residents in Alameda. I think uh, you may or may not recall we spoke last time. There's not a target here, but this is one of the things that are called out when you're becoming um, an anchor institution in the community that you should should watch carefully to see, are we recruiting from our community? Are there patterns of behavior that we want to address? So as you'll see... um, the applicants are, have, are absolutely steady, 54% of the applicants. The number of applicants in the quarter dropped. That's probably a seasonal drop around the Christmas period or the holiday period, rather. So we saw that drop in number of applicants, but the standard in terms of percentage is exactly the same, 54%. Out of the new hires, 
it's around about the same. We had 61% locally or from within Alameda County, uh, and the current employees are about 65%. And so we're hovering around the, the right place. We're doing a lot of advertising locally. We use local sources like Pandora to try and drive people who are using local radio stations within the area, and we're going to try and drive this more so that we're hiring as many people as we can from the local community. Um, Tracy, and, and then Maria. Um, go ahead. Uh, just a curiosity about the internship programs that we have. Are we uh, good about hiring from the internship programs, and are those folks required to be local, more or less? So the internships, uh, we have a very, we have various programs. Some of them uh, drive straight from the Oakland School District, and so we have hired some people from those programs. We have a volunteer program, which is a is a little different than most hospitals, who typically have an auxiliary. So Almeida Hospital has an auxiliary, so does San Leandro Hospital. Here, most of the people who come to volunteer um, in the core of AHS are people who are planning on a career somewhere in healthcare. And so we hire a number of those people uh, either as regular employees or they've come back later as residents. And we can get some numbers on that that would tell us that people have really got experience at the front line here and then they've come back to be residents and gone on to be physicians within the system. And so we do, we do a good work around that, but we're going to do better over a period of time. I just wanted to add an anecdotally. Um, uh, we were, we were uh, celebrating recently, although not a direct employee of the organization, uh, and uh, a physician who joined our OBGYN staff who uh, um, went to Berkeley High and uh, had her first experience at Highland as a volunteer uh, in high school and, uh, and is just joined the medical staff here. So we're, we're going to feature her in some of the work with Health Path, which is our work with the uh, Oakland uh, School District and a couple of others, San Leandro and Alameda now as well, uh, to show that you know that path uh, is is possible for all all layers of uh, uh, career possibilities within the organization. Great. Yeah, what I'll also add is um, Jessica Pitt, who runs the Health Pass program, has worked a lot with Lisa Marie. We're trying to work. Um, with the unions in particular about reserving jobs for people coming through the internship programs. And so we've got to negotiate uh, and really we've got to meet and confer with the unions to see how, what their position is on having people come into entry-level jobs. And uh, particularly sit at positions which is the entry-level clinical type of job and other roles. And we have work to do there, but I think we're developing a clear path from an internship or some experience through high school into an entry-level job and then on to, into a career. Why would you need to meet and confer? What's the way of the concern be? Because you're, you're moving away from pure seniority and saying we want to give effectively some preference to people who had an internship as opposed to through uh, internal seniority. Because, oh, because you think Someone might want to move into a, class, a particular classification. We want to specifically reserve them. I, I've talked to Jessica a lot about this, and we're giving people experiences. I want those experiences to result in hiring. Uh, you know, I've done a lot of workforce planning, workforce development at, at Kaiser a long time ago, and there was lots of work done, but very little of it resulted in actual hiring of people. And for us, it's more important. Kaiser's mission is different than ours, and, and in truth, they do a lot of good work in the community, but it's more important for us that we we follow the path and we actually bring people on board. Um, Tracy. Um, my, uh, uh, my question um, was just with regard to your first comment about the 54% the applicants. Yeah. Um, where do you attribute 
it, it, you said it's usually about 60% or 100? No, I said that 54% held steady uh, over the two, two quarters that we're measuring, and then 62% of the hires, 62, 61% of the people that, that are being hired out of the total applicant population. Um, but 54, I mean, people, you would, you would think that, I'm just curious, why are people wanting to come here um, from, at, from other, outside. outside of Alameda County? This will sound trite, uh, but uh, for those that don't, aren't tied to the mission, so some people come here because of the mission, they want to work in public health or safety net. Uh, for some people, we're a hospital, and you know, a nurse's skills are transferable to any hospital at any location. And likewise for an EVS worker or a dietary worker or a pharmacist or a clinical lab scientist, people move around much more frequently because their skills are absolutely transferable from one hospital to another. And so you get a lot of transition, uh, particularly people early in their careers. In the early 2000s during the nursing shortage, you saw people on the peninsula there's a hospital every five miles, and people would take a job and go within a year because there were signing bonuses. Pharmacists were actually being hired with a signing BMW uh, for, for Walgreens and other companies. And so there were a lot of incentives for people to move. And so people move pretty frequently, and if the job looks like it's a... The, the data will typically show you nurses in particular, and it's the largest group, uh, they leave jobs typically because they don't feel professionally developed and they have an interaction with a manager they don't like. They take their next job because of shift, location, and pay. And that, so, that yeah, kind of repeats itself. Alameda County is pretty adjacent to Contra Costa and the That's sewer. Right. So would you, would you have an idea of where most of the other, most of these? We, we could likely find out. I, I don't know offhand, but we could find okay. out. But, but, but I would su also suggest that a lot of people live outside of Alameda County further east and travel in because of the cost of living. Right. right you're pushing, you're absolutely right, you're pushing to Contra Costa and other counties that are further, further away where people feel they can commute to. And you'll see that uh, again, it's very acute on the peninsula as well, where the cost of living escalated from a time when it was mainly orchards uh, and nurses lived on the peninsula. Predominantly now you'll see a, a, a crescent moon into the East Bay where all, not all, but a vast majority of nurses live and healthcare workers, and then they travel into where we are, to Oakland, and then onto the peninsula and, and to San Francisco, because the cost of living is just too high for them to live close to where they work. So that's what I would say that's really the, the, the big issues around why the applicants come from outside the county. Um, I'll skip over the workers' comp because we're waiting for data on that from Matrix, and Greg is going to speak a little bit about that in, in the next presentation. Um, then I want to skip on to uh, turnover. You'll see the target for the year is 11.9%. Uh, overall, we're 11.41%. Uh, previous quarter was 11.3%. So we're, we're right about on target o over those quarters. Uh, we feel like we're in pretty good shape. The first year turnover is still a concern. Uh, and I'll talk about that in a few slides or, uh, with some more detailed exit interview data that I included in the deck for you to see. Uh, but I think that first year turnover really is the, the largest area of concern for me. Um, and there are a couple of things that I, I'll talk about later that, that, that are going to address, that, that we'll, we'll try and use to address those concerns. I don't think we're going to solve them because turnover in healthcare is typically fairly large in the first year. Uh, as people are coming, often coming out of school, going to their first nursing job and finding that it's not exactly what they expected and so often they move quite quickly and often the second job is quick and then they tend to settle down. But, but it's a concern for us because it's incredibly expensive, it's disruptive and it, and it impacts the culture and patient care. Uh, 
And um, Tony, with regard to this, I, I think it's good with regard to the dashboard, just my input, yeah. that we actually don't need to go further out yeah. because, and, and you can talk to that, but yeah. if we go out to five or 10 years, it's. Yeah, it, it becomes, what I would tell you generally is after the fifth year, it drops off dramatically. You know, the couple of reasons. One is people invest in the retirement plan. Most of, most of their employees, 92%, are unionized. The, the two-thirds of them are within the core and they're in a SARA. The fifth year, they vest. And so people tend to be more reluctant to leave after that point in time. And so, the, and, and in truth, they've really invested in the company at that point as well. So you see a drop-off. Ask for a wacky analysis that might tell us something to help. Um, <clears throat> do you know what percentage of, uh, or what the per what's the attrition rate for first-year employees who are Alameda County residents versus not? And here's why I'm asking. Yep. <clears throat> if we can incentivize uh, and even create a point, uh, uh, <clears throat> sorry, if we, if, but, I don't know how your hiring process works, so just let me get yeah, out yeah. rabbit hole for a minute. If you get if you if you rank people and they get points, if you give them an extra five or ten points for being an Alameda County resident, so all things considered, you know they're equal, equally qualified, but one's a resident, so they get they get a preference. So we increase that number. They're, they already live here, so you said the reason that people choose a job, their second job, is. Shift, shift location, shift location, and, shift pay. location and pay. So location, if you're already an Alameda County resident, you're invested here because it's where you want to be, mm -hmm. and we can make it better to stay here. I'm just wondering if, if our if our uh, first year uh, attrition rate is substantially high, lower uh, with for our Alameda County residents, then that might be reason to incentivize and to, to give them a preferential hiring. Um, I know that's maybe a little crazy, but I actually like to look at that. I think so. Yeah. Because if I don't, if I'm not connected to a community, I'll bail after a year. But like, there's no way I'm leaving Oakland <laughs> at this point in my life, you know. And uh, yeah, longer, yeah. So I, I wonder if that might help help that first year and, and save us some of that that heartache and resources. And, and I think we all need to be mindful that that first year of any sector of any industry is the toughest right. and one of those factors can simply be people not realizing what they're getting themselves into yeah. Yeah. so if you look at teaching if you look at a couple of other professions the first year can be super difficult because yeah, right. people come in thinking one thing and then they find out it's something else so one of your i know yeah. we're going to talk about it later yeah. is really educating people about the job yeah. educating them through the onboarding process yeah. and making sure they feel supported that issue of feeling connected, yeah. um, I, I think, is another layer of that equation. And so when you get to that, I'll ask yeah. And maybe, the, maybe part of the challenge of the first year is the commute if they live two counties yeah. away. Of course. Yeah, of course. Well, I, I, I just, I, I think it, it sounds um, um, like a sort of a, a good logic model to explore. Only if the stats back it up. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, yeah, but, but I think even just uh, kind of the concept of location can be there's a story behind stats, and so if, if we look at it, the, the logic model that developed here was was that the premise is that someone lives here or doesn't live here, and that's the static part, and then the dynamic part is whether they stay in the job or not. But the reverse could also be true. So you could start a job living here, and then 
move. Mm -hmm. And so now your dynamics have changed. That's right. And so then that changes the dynamics of the world right. itself. Like, well, I used to live five miles away, and now I live 35 miles away. Yeah. I want to get a job closer to my, my residence. So if there was some other driver outside of this, still under the category of location. So if we were to say, hey, a lot of our attrition is uh, uh, as a result of, I don't know that we know well, we probably could in terms of like final paycheck, but we'd have to we'd be caught in this narrative of like resident or uh, uh, housing location at employment versus at separation, because you'd have to kind of look at those and not assume that they are one and the same, yeah. even in that first year of employment. Because yeah. maybe that I come to school, I lived in the area, I relocated, and now I'm changing my job to one. Yeah. one I think they're all true, but we, we can certainly look at it. I'm, I'm open to the idea. Preferential hiring is always risky. Yeah, Point no. systems are risky outside of the, right. you know, the uh, civil service sector in terms of the potential disparate impact. Mm -hmm. Are you favoring people within a high cost of living area close to Oakland versus where people have chosen to live, which is outside the county because that's where they can afford to live, and they migrated away even though they want to stay connected and work here. So yeah. there are risks, but it doesn't it doesn't mean it's not something we should look at. I love the number, you know, I mean, there's smoke there. there's yeah. smoke. Yeah, absolutely. So that, I, I, I agree. Maybe just do a preliminary analysis and yeah. not, don't go too deep into it. Yeah. But another um, issue about comparative turnover that I, that Maria kind of raised and occurred to me is that um, new grads that, you, you know, they don't know what they're getting into. So yeah. um, do we, is there any data? Can we look and see how, what our turnover is? For new grads versus yeah, for nursing we started uh, probably going to say six or nine months ago flagging them in the system. The uh, Wilson did not flag them as new hires in that when I don't want to bore you with this, but we would lose them when they went from a CM1 to a CM2 within the system, and they would turn over from a CM2 job, not a CM1 job, which is what a new grad goes into. And so as we did the analysis, there wasn't a flag saying that they'd come into a new grad program. So when we did the turnover analysis, we didn't see them as someone who was a new grad who ultimately left. They become a CM2 after six months. That's under the contract so language. Turning over so no, they were turning over, but in the title of CM2, so we weren't tracking that there were a new grad who'd come in. And so we've we've done some uh, modifications to Lawson, our HRS system, so now we can track that. So going forward, um, we can now see when people turn over from new grad jobs on a regular basis. Right, right. So annually, yeah, we, we'll be able CM1 to see that. or CM2 in the first two years. Yeah. If they're if they're leaving after um, this is their first job, yeah, yeah, yeah we can do that. Because we can address, we can find ways to address that in training. Absolutely. You're just saying we won't be able to go back far. Yeah, I can't go historically on new grads, but going forward we can absolutely pull that down. Sure, and, and again, preliminary, if it doesn't really, you know. If it doesn't say anything, I'll let you yeah. know that we looked at it. Thanks. So, um, I know that Maria had asked for this previously, and I'd sort of been pumping the brakes on sharing exit interview data because I'm always, always cautious of sharing data when the end's too small and, and sets uh, a view of the world that may not be an accurate view. It may be an individual. So since we uh, put the exit interview um, in place, um, we um, have had 449 respondents. So the percentage you see in the right column are of those respondents. We've had more turnover than that, but our response rate to the exit interviews is about 50%. However, it's a little higher, 52, 54, and a little below, depending upon the week or month. And so everybody who exits, voluntary or involuntary, and I deliberately included the involuntaries, 
so we could look at that data. Uh, it's called a number of times by the Work Institute, a company we contract with. They get a set of standardized questions, so we have a data set that be, can be reasonably compared. Um, of the 449 respondents, 59 uh, changed jobs or left because of career. 39 environment, 70 involuntary, so terminations again to that, that what I was talking about earlier, I'm a little concerned about in that first year because a lot of it's in the probationary period, which is of concern to me. Uh, management, and then the last is time. And so what does that mean if you take another layer down? So time, as I mentioned earlier, shift, schedule, and commute. So uh, 15, 16% of people basically either shift or schedule or commute was the reason they chose to leave. And when you have transferable skills and, and despite being professionals, nurses, pharmacists, uh, even ED physicians are shift workers. I wouldn't refer to them in that mood, but that's ultimately what they are. And there are many, many hospitals in the Bay Area, in many regards more so than in lots of other parts of the country. And so people have many choices. And so if the commute is hard, I have a choice to go work at another hospital. Uh, if I'm not getting the shift I want, and typically people start on a night shift or a swing shift, which is uh, the least desirable, and someone else is offering me a day shift job where I can deal with my family in a better way, they will move. And so those things, to a degree, are not changeable by us unless we were to do a housing program and, and in truth those things I don't think are realistic for us to look at at this point in time. Uh, the shift in schedule is really a product of uh, a unionized environment and seniority. Everyone comes in at night shift because that's what becomes available. Everyone ultimately moves to the day shift or bumps to it and that leaves the least desirable shifts available. Uh, and when people have been doing it for a long time they get tired and they, they often want to move to a different shift and if we have one available that's great if we don't then they can choose to leave. Uh, laid off uh, and the first two in the involuntary laid off or job elimination and fired, that's not a repeat, they're two separate groups. At uh, first I thought it was an anomaly or that we've repeated it but it's just it turns out it's coincidental, it's the same number. Um, unsatisfactory performance and violation of company policy. My recollection, I looked at the data in a slightly deeper cut, and 22 out of that group were, were terminated during the probationary period. And that's what's given me some cause, uh, and I'll talk about it in a later slide, to think about our interviewing and selection. Less about the recruitment process in terms of talent identification by the recruiters and bringing the, the uh, people in. At the point of interview and getting to offer, I'm concerned that we are not informing people appropriately about the job, not using the right selection techniques, and using that first six-month period as a, try, a trial period. And I, I say this when I've done interview training in the past, we're buying a house, not a cup of coffee. This is a big deal. People leave a job and come to work for us. We should be sure and they should be sure. We can't guarantee it's going to work out. And sometimes people make mistakes when they join us and we make mistakes when we hire people and it's not a good fit. But we should be investing a lot on the front end when we interview people because it's a change for them and it's a change for us and we want to make sure it works. So I'll talk about that a little later because I think it's important for us to do work around that. Uh, development and growth opportunities. So 22 people or 4.9% of the respondents um, were looking for alternatives in development and they didn't see it here. So again, that's a concern to us because we are investing in people's development and training. So we want it to be clear and communicated effectively that we're doing work and we want people to develop internally. Some people move for a different type of work, about 3%. 
promotional opportunity, i.e. they left because they got promoted in another job, there was a, a greater growth opportunity somewhere else. Doesn't mean they didn't have one here, but someone gave them that opportunity. And job security, which is, as you see, it's a 0.2% is very low because I think people, are, as a public employer, we have tenured employment, so that, that's uh, the percentage is extremely low. Uh, and then the last section, the management, these are people's views of their manager, that their manager was either unprofessional, didn't provide support, um, other is just a catch-all, or the communication was poor knowledge and skills. If you look in the far right column, the percentages are relatively low, other than the unprofessional behavior, 18 people is pretty high out of the 449 people have responded, so that's a concern and something that we want to look into. Were these anonymous surveys? They, uh, they are anonymous. So we do get feedback from the department on the department they exited from, and we have other verbatim uh, answers from the employees that we can look into. One of the questions in the survey actually is a flag if they, if they think there's a compliance issue and a violation. Uh, we share that with the compliance department, with Rick, and if it's a, a labor relations issue, we'll do an investigation. Some of the information typically is a disgruntled employee. They left, they didn't like their manager. We investigated, it turns out the employee was not doing well. They chose to leave and they, they're gonna say in the exit interview they didn't like the manager or they weren't good. That, but that's not all of the data. Some people who've taken another opportunity are very forthcoming and we have information that's proven useful for us to take a look at departments and what's going on. But Tony, we do have an ethics line. We do have somewhere yes. where people can complain. About we, we have a compliance hotline. Right. Uh, we have an email. Uh, if there's a clinical issue that goes on, we have a, a, an incident reporting system called Midas and they are able to go to labor relations. They can go to the hotline anonymously okay. and the compliance department will contact us if it's an employee relations issue and we'll investigate it and they can also go through the same source uh, with an email if they want to do so. So we have a number of ways for people to connect. Do, uh, do you feel there's adequate signage about that? Are you, like, you know, anything that just says if there's a problem or if there's an issue? I, I, I do think so. I think uh, I think it's a cultural shift for us. So what I would expect to happen over time, Rick's done a really good job in this area around encouraging people to report incidents and problems that they think are non-compliant. Shifting away from, and, and we see these, and this is not to, to minimize it, my manager approved someone's PTO and not mine, or my manager, did we get those sorts of things reported to the compliance line? But the culture is shifting where, where people see things that are actually appropriate and relevant, they're reporting. Mm -hmm. And through minus and whatever I'd expect over time is those reports to increase and for us not to see that as a concern or a negative. To see that as a positive that our environment is seeing things they're concerned about and they're reporting them and we're investigating and solving them. But that's going to spike and then over time it will start to reduce as we get as we start to solve these problems. So I do think it's I do think this signage, I think Wick's team have been out meeting with managers and the staff, communicating about the ability to report to that. I think on the flip side around the employees in particular, uh, John Hardy set up triage sessions. So in labor relations, we have triage sessions on a weekly and monthly basis in units. So employees can bring forth issues and resolve them at the source with the manager in the room. And so I think that's pushing down the number of complaints. So I think there are a number of things in place and I do think that employees have a place to go. And, it, and the last resort is if they've left, they can provide the feedback if they want to do so. Um, so the, you know, three key actions, and there are more than this. Uh, as I've already talked about previously, the Leadership Academy, and I sent you the information earlier today about when it is and, and, the, and the documents about each, each of the modules. 
um, we will we'll be rolling things into it. So we see the academy as an iterative process. We have six days. The modules are set around facilitative leadership and the various other trainings, but that doesn't mean we can't roll information in that we get in real time and start to bake it in and be clear with people their interactions do have impact on their employees. There are two areas in particular around diversity and inclusion, that, and I don't uh, want to go through which departments they are. We're discussing directly with their managers that we see uh, some cultural, what we would term under the training, we're doing cultural bumps mm -hmm. between employees and managers, and we're going to do a deeper dive in those areas and do training with the managers and the staff to sort of bring together a better relationship because we think we can address that. So these are things that you've we are doing come up in the... Through the exit interviews and also through Leadership Academy and direct feedback. Right. And so we're actioning the feedback that we're getting from employees, hearing what they're saying, assessing it to making sure we think it's both valid and then doing a deeper dive if necessary and then going out and resolving those issues. Uh, and then we're developing the remote, more robust interview training. Um, as I said earlier, I'm concerned about those probation release employees. That's telling me we're not doing a good job as an organization when we hire people. And so, um, so I want to spend a lot of time around that area so that we're able to work with managers, put in place a robust process that says this is the amount of time and effort you invest before you hire someone. You don't hire someone because you think they're okay and you're going to try them out because that sets a really poor culture for the organization. We're making a big investment, and we should spend the time on the front end, and that's going to save us time on the back end. So these are three key areas. There are other areas of education we need to go into, but these are three that I think we can action pretty quickly because we have the diversity inclusion module ready, and we're doing that in Leadership Academy. We can dive into that in the specific areas where we're identified, do the recruitment training, and then build out the academy a little bit more. So I have a question about sure. just um, the... So it's one thing to have the diversity and inclusion yeah. training module for the leadership academy, yeah. but when there is an incident or there are tensions, that to me is much more of an intervention. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just describe who's doing that kind of intervention for you now, and a caution, you know, given the sensitivity of those issues, it may be helpful to have an outsider yeah. be stepping in so that, you know, uh, that kind of work, which I think is really specialized, can be done yep. with someone else. So today we're doing it in the academy, but we're also in these particular departments, and there are two of them that are identified, we're going to go in and do the intervention. Okay. And we're using the same language okay. around okay. what we're using in the academy so that we keep, we remain consistent. It'll be with the business partner okay. who's affiliated with that site. Mm -hmm. Uh, and we have two, I think we have nine people actually, they're actually certified in the training that, that we implemented, and so they will be involved. Uh, it's poten there's potential, depending upon the situations, to have a, the Labor Relations Department involved because there may be sensitive union issues that we need to deal with, and the managers in those departments and their leaders as well. Uh, so that's how we're doing it right now, but I do take the feedback about yeah. using external resources and we'll, we'll think about whether that's the right way to go in certain circumstances. But there are at least a couple of areas that I'm that I'm aware of uh, that led to this bullet point, but there are others um, that I think we have work to do where historically um, everyone in the department's been of a particular race and that has built attention with other departments and we need to go in and not only diversify the department, 
but also help explain why it's not a good idea to have a department entirely of people of the same race or nationality in, a, in an area because it's, it causes issues for the patients and everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so there are, that's a, there are two and there's a third location where we've already done some work and we need to go back and do some more work because that's something we've identified. Uh, time to start improvement. These are really the things we've done because I wanted to call them out for Lisa Marie's team has worked really hard, uh, again, with employee health as well and also Time with to start improvement. Okay. Yeah, so, so this is how we're yeah, moving to Yeah, this is how we move the needle. That's right. And so decrease timeline, submit drug screen. And so with the employee health team and Lisa Marie's team, they rewrote the policy. Typically, we'd allow people five to seven days to do a drug test. It's now 24 to 48 hours. Simple change on paper, but they had to go through a significant process to get us to this point in time. And that just shrinks the window. Does uh, everyone do a drug screen? Everyone does before they come to work here, yes. What are you screened for? Uh, we have a 10 panel, and so there are 10 separate drugs. I don't recall off the top of my head ex all of them, but we... You need the next question. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, you the yes. Is it Yes. Is that a disqualifier? Um, it depends. Interesting. <laughs> On? <laughs> um, until very recently... Yeah, I know somebody left the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> until very recently, unless you had a prescription. Because, right. because yeah. that would be a recommendation. Yeah. Because you, would, you would ask people to show up no, no. but you so, would ask. Yeah. They, would, they would take a blood test, uh -huh. uh, or a urine test rather. It would show positive for a particular drug. Whatever that drug was would be, get referred to a medical uh, review officer. That medical review officer would then have the conversation with the employee or the applicant, not us. Hmm. And they would pass them or not pass them on a set of criteria. Mm -hmm. If someone was prescribed, they would say it's not a positive. If you were, had an opioid in your system, you had a prescription for it, it was perfectly reasonable, you would pass even though you had that drug in your system. Right. If you didn't have a uh, prescription, then you would fail. Mm -hmm. And so there are 10 separate drugs they go through. Uh, Mike and I and Dalek have been talking about the issue that you're raising and we have work to do in the air about how we're going to handle it. Because most healthcare institutions have once uh, medical marijuana became legal, maintain the federal standard. And so on the front end, when they hired people, they would test, they would do what we were doing uh, to a degree. They wouldn't eat, in some instances, they wouldn't uh, accept the prescription for medical marijuana. And so they would just not accept it, anyone who failed that test. That hasn't been our position, and now we've got work to do around what are we going to do with people coming forward. If someone had a lot of alcohol in the system and they tested, they fell as well. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's a matter of, obviously, yeah, marijuana is a more challenging. But different. Yeah, right, of course it is different. And so that's the challenge for everyone, yeah. right? So you come in and you're above a certain um, uh, breathalyzer test or whatever you may assess, you, you would actually be inebriated. And marijuana stays in your system for about 30 days. Uh, very difficult to test how much is in your system, so it's a problem. Yeah. And I don't, I, in, in truth, and uh, Mike and I have talked about it, and Dalvecchio as well, there isn't an easy answer for this. And I'm not, it's not clear to me where we'll end up, but we're working our way through this. And Alexander, the Associate Council, is working his way through where we think we'll end up because there are implications for patients as well. Mm -hmm. So that those are the legal issues we're trying to work our way through. But it's, I, don't, I don't have a clean answer for you right now. There may be some resources for you with the AAA's National Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, this is something that I've just seen in our uh, conversations that, uh, to your point, there is no agreed upon 
um, limit or amount or measure. And so it's posing some really interesting challenges for anyone who's stopped, you know, right. for any kind of mm. traffic, traffic violation. Yeah. So um, I will look for where the link is for the report, but there okay. is some discussion being held at a national level, yeah. and I know the research folks there did some work on how do we start uh, addressing this. Yeah. And more immediately, there's a discussion at the state level with yeah. the CHP uh, yes. with the implementation of, of uh, the proposition because Washington State went the, the extreme where you know if any amount in your system right. you can get a DUI, that just doesn't make sense. Um, and so California, the, the, there is a task force working on that. Yeah. and it's, you know, what they're coming up with, I think, is case, it, it's going to be about impairment, you know, for them right. on driving. I realize for employment, it's a little bit different. Right. And, and, yeah. uh, and I realize it's sticky. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the East Bay is also very, um, well, how do I say this? You know, it's, it was the, the political it's epicenter for the political was pro-recreational uh, cannabis use. That's yeah. fine. Here's where we are. And, and the law is passed, but there's no right. easy answer to this. Right. Right. You know, you, the federal law is still what it is. State laws are what they are. And we sit in the middle trying to employ people potentially subject to both. Right. And so we're going to have to wind our way through this, and there'll be litigation down there. And, I would, and, I would and defer, right then as well, general counsel returns after we finish the conversation out for a while. I would defer to the state law. I mean, we all know that the yeah. federal law is, is arcane, and, and has, caused, you know, has just caused you know, to destroy so many lives. So I would hope that we would err to the California law and then really look at best management you know practices yeah. you know as an employer and as a provider of health care for patients I mean I think when you if you factor in federal law it's just too easy to just say it's legal can't do it you're out of here and and that's just that's why the federal law has been such an ab absolute failure um, so I think hopefully we'll but on the other hand we have some considerations considering that we most of our reimbursement comes either from the federal through the state or from directly through Medicare, so, Just you know. Just federal law, you know, would, would, would we be impacted by not calling if there were a workforce for a federal reimbursement? No, there, there's no regs at this point, but there could be. Well, <coughs> well there are implications for, for not following federal law with mm -hmm. regard to eligibility for reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So, and it's, you know, I'm not, you know, at this point going to say, well, you know, if we do this, <coughs> you know, that if it's A, then it's going to be B. But one of the considerations in terms of crafting a policy, particularly when you're talking about on the patient side, is what impact would that have on the opportunity to pursue, you know, certain types of reimbursement. Practically speaking, most hospitals have opted away from um, policy or opted in the direction of policies that basically are more in line with the federal law to avoid the issue or the financial implications of having a policy that might be to the contrary. But I think as Tony may have alluded to, we have at least within my group, <coughs> group we've started the discussion about what those policies should look like both on the patient clinical side and then how those should be aligned with uh, policies on the employment side as well too. We don't want people coming to work high. I mean, no, I really want to patient care. But I think we also want to, you know, when in Rome, 
Right, and, and I would say, and I, you know, I think Mike's right, we can't say where the line is, but marijuana, the, the difficulty is no one can tell you where the line is, mm -hmm. and you can have people impaired providing care. So I don't know the right answer to this yet, and we're going we're to have to work hard to do well, what is a complex issue. How about a future yeah, thing? We yeah, should move good. on. Sorry, sorry, that's okay. Yeah. Um, that's right. Um, Craig and Lisa Marie Paul. So uh, Lisa Marie's team implemented a contract man contact management system, which is um, you know a CMS that like you would use for uh, sales. And so it's a, you build a pipeline of candidates, you can start calling them. They haven't applied for a job yet, but you can really start driving that. Uh, and then ongoing advertising presence, uh, as I talked about last time. Uh, and then we're looking under consideration right now, assessment implementing a referral bonus, and Lisa Marie and her team are pushing me hard on this, so we're going to have to decide about moving forward. Forward, and then implement is that a, is that a um, negotiation issue? No. Okay. And then implement a 30-60-90 day uh, check-in. So we've done some work on this oh, and, and we need to build that in terms of the engagement of employees, keeping them onboarded uh, and saying, okay, how do we ensure that this person feels at home and feels connected? It's difficult on a, um, you may have, a, as odd as it sounds, Beyond the interview, you could go several months and not meet your manager as a nurse. Mm -hmm. So you get interviewed, you get hired because the manager may work on the day shift, you come to work on a night shift or a weekend, and it could be six months before you actually meet the manager. So we need to do something about that. But again, because of shift, shift patterns being as they are, we've got to work how to do that effectively. We think this is a good way to go. Uh, again, brand awareness that the team's already done around social media, uh, and I, I won't belabor the point, but you know, a 10-day drop is significant in terms of time to acceptance, and so that's a really big plus for us, and we think we've stabilized on then the onboarding to about 19 days after, after the offer. Uh, so I'm going to ask Greg, uh, he's going to talk to you uh, about Matrix. Uh, we recently outsource our lead management process uh, to a vendor, um, and Greg's team is responsible for that. He and Paula, and he's going to talk about a little bit of the uh, what that looks now, now for our employees. We think it's a significant improvement, uh, and we're glad that we've done it. And uh, you know, Greg will talk a little bit more about the detail. Thank you. Hi, Greg. Good evening. So why did we go to Matrix? It actually was implemented right at 12.1.17. Uh, there was a lot of good reasons, actually. And the main one is the amount of volume we were getting with our leaves. At any given time, we would have roughly 300 open leaves managed by one and a half people. <laughs> and so it became really unsustainable for us. Um, the customer service aspect especially was was lagging and we heard about it. Um, and another primary issue was compliance. We weren't being compliance with getting back to employees within five days from the request for FMLA. Department of Labor says we need to do that. We were not doing that consistently. Uh, we did our research and determined that Matrix was the best provider for, for us. They're doing a wonderful job down at Stanford. That, that impressed us quite a bit. Uh, and as I will mention later, we'll talk a little bit about the return on investment with, with going to Matrix. Is this just for 
this for all leaves? It could use disability. I mean, that's what it looked like, but do we have yeah, a so every leave besides workers' comp. Okay. So any type of medical. Okay, that's, that's all I need. Okay. So this is, this is going to give you a very high-level overview of our partnership with Matrix. That's what this slide is speaking to. So it's, it's really Matrix and myself and, and my team working together on, on making sure that the lead process is a much smoother process for our employees. Um, the thing we like about Matrix is that they're really a paperless environment and really is helpful because what we're getting from them is once they're getting a leave uh, usually by phone is the typical way within I'll, I'll get to the time frames a little bit in the next slide but we're getting an email and the manager's getting an email saying your employee has requested leave uh, one caveat to that is that we're still emphasizing Employee, you need to speak to your manager <laughs> before requesting leave. That's that's still in effect and will always be in effect. Uh, there's a single point of contact, so there's a, a claims examiner for each case, and the employee and or manager can go directly to the claims manager or, or examiner, excuse me, and get the information they need on that particular employee's leave. Greg, can you yeah. walk me through, if, say I'm a um, night shift worker and I'm, my child is sick and I, I'm going to call it my child was hospitalized or had, you know, severe or something, and I'm going to be sick for a few days, do I call the, the, the contractor or do I call the contractor and my manager who's not there because she's... That's a good question. Or he is... Well, step one is speak to your manager. And advise them of, of the need for leave. Would I leave them a message, or do who's ever on, who's ever in charge, let them? Whoever's on on charge for the shift, there's okay. usually be a, a night. I'm just talking or, about nursing and clinical staff, basically. Right, and it's really a, a communication between employee and manager still needs to happen. Okay. It's still quite important. It, I mean, this isn't for a day, a sick day. This right. is three, three or more days is when it kicks right. in, right? Okay. So, Correct. so yeah, your your kid's sick for a day. Right. That's that's a manager employee yeah. call, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I actually had this come up today, and really, the only time you're not going to your manager is if there's an, an emergency mm -hmm. where you really mm -hmm. don't have that opportunity. Uh, that's the only time I want to see that that communication doesn't happen. And I'm sorry, I may have missed this at the beginning. When did this get implemented? This December 1st. December 1st. Thank you. So the last bubble there is, is really to show that Matrix really has an emphasis on return to work. That's the ultimate goal is, is, is getting folks back to work in a timely manner. I just want to emphasize something on that. And it, I think when we say that to employees uh, or occasionally our union partners, they, they have this presumption that we just want to get people back to work and off their leave. It, the quicker you get an employee who's had some sort of medical leave back from work, the more likely they are to return to work. That's significant implications for them through the rest of their life. If people are out of work for a long time for, for a medical leave, 
when they could reasonably have returned to work, even not fulfilling the full duties and responsibilities of the job, mm -hmm. then they're not, they're not likely to come back. And we need them to come back, not just for us, for them. but for them. And so the more we work with a partner who's really driving to get the person to return to work, to be productive, to do what they can as quickly as they can, the better it is for that employee and their family, right. not, not just for HR. It seems more likely to return by getting that's feedback and getting someone that they think that they're needed, or they think they Yeah, could. absolutely. That's an important point. This slide really points to the different ways and methods an employee can apply for leave. Uh, so there's three ways that an employee can apply for leave, and it can be through a toll-free phone number any time of day or night, 24-7-365. There's also an online option if they want to go via the internet. And finally, there's a mobile app you can download like, <laughs> and apply that way. Actually, it's, some of our employees are, are, have taken to that. Um, kind of weird. I like the fact that they have bilingual staff available at all time. Mm -hmm. And um, that's a US-based US staff. I think that's really important. But the other thing is that calls are getting answered less than 30 seconds. I would actually have an experience Earlier this week, where I was able to sit down on a call with an employee, uh, the intake person answered very quickly. Uh, the, the gentleman I was working with had a mental health issue, not doing great, and she talked. I just, I just was very impressed with the way she spoke to him and very methodically went through the questions. He was very appreciative at the end and thanked her, and the whole process took less than 20 minutes. Um, he actually came to me earlier in the day and said, Greg, what do I do now? I don't know the new process. And, and so I just sat and walked him through it. And just and as Greg moves to the next slide, the big thing for us is we simply can't do this, not, not, a, not on a reasonable scale. We're about 3,900 employees now. As Greg mentioned, over 300 leaves at any one time. We can't staff a bilingual team 24-7. Right. You know, so then, then this. Call, you may have five or ten 20 minute calls a day. Who's going to make those? That's right. And we, we, that's exactly. hence the point exactly. why do we go to this? This is better customer service. It allows us to process in a more effective way. It allows us to focus on our core business. And these guys are doing what is core to them, which is to manage this process in an effective fashion. And we can hold them accountable for delivering to the metrics that we've agreed upon. I'm uh, not sure. Is there a price for this service that you've yes. listed here? There is, the price is not in there. And I, well, I, it's 140000 annually. Yeah. Oh, that's really right. a great deal, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. A bit of a no-brainer. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you might not even be able to hire one. <laughs> Uh, so this slide speaks to really the initial stages of the, the claim intake process and uh, just gives you an idea of how it goes if, if things are all going smoothly. <laughs> uh, so, so the standard calls between 8 and 11 minutes. Uh, within 15 minutes, a email notice is going to myself, my team, and the manager. The managers alerted pretty quickly. They'll do their outreach to the employee's physician within the first day, and the employee is getting a packet of information regarding their leave and rights to leave. 
uh, either if they want to text, they have that option. Uh, typically, it's mailed because most people don't. People haven't got the app uh, necessarily, but so it's it's been mostly mailed at this point. Any questions about about that? I would just like to make a comment that that process this is going to happen I, I noticed you're contacting the physician what if the person is basically saying I'm fine it's my family member I need five days is it just an assumption that the physician should know or there is a physician? This isn't their family physician. It's a physician, right? It, if, if appropriate, right? So we're only going to connect with a physician. No, yeah. if, if it's appropriate, depending yeah. upon the circumstances. Right. A, lot, a lot of times the employees come into Matrix with the medical certification right. already or a medical note, uh -huh. and it's yeah. a lot of times they're just verifying hmm. the note with the physician. So that Matrix, you would fax your... your note from your doctor or whatever to matrix? Yeah, we're still doing quite a bit of shuffling paperwork to, to matrix because a lot of people are coming to us. We we still want them to come to us. We, we're really much of working much like a liaison to matrix at this point yeah. and managing them and, and how they're, mm -hmm. they're uh, working with us. Um, so that will continue. I mean, your next slide, you're going to go to the return on investment. Right. But what happens next? I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm assuming they manage not just this intake process, but you talk about getting them back to work. So um, I mean, this just kind of ends with they got the packet. So what, what is it that Matrix, provi Matrix provides then to see that people are getting the support they need and, 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 and follow? Like, like how, how it, maybe, maybe that's in the ROI. I, just, I don't understand. No, it's, it's not in the ROI. <laughs> uh, Really, they're, you know, let me take a step backwards. Because we have so many MOUs and we live in California, <laughs> we spent quite a bit of time working with Matrix on uh, our rules and entitlements in, as an employer, but also in California. So they're managing to our rules. Uh, and we're making sure that they're doing that. Uh, and that's why I think it's really important that we stay involved as, as a, much as an employer liaison as they go forward. Um, so when you get to the point where somebody's ready to return to work, I think that's where what you're looking for. Well, I guess, yeah, I mean, from the time that it's approved, someone needs 30 days for a medical reason. Is it then just you know, that 30 days, we just, it's just no communication, or is there any sort of checking in that's done to, to see how they're doing? Or is it only if they then initiate, like, back to us, oh, I need more time because of my circumstance? Like, what? Yeah, I think um, there's a, ch my recollection is there is a check-in when we're getting close to return to work, mm -hmm. where the leave day is coming to a close, and I, I believe it's around a week before we're checking in with the employee. And seeing, uh, uh, can we anticipate your return to full duty at this uh, within a week? Is that or, are you, or are you going to be extending? Right. That's them. Yes. Okay. Um, I I still encourage managers 
right. to check in with their employees. Really just to see, just a wellness check. Yeah. How are you doing? <laughs> I think it's really, really important. Um, some of the leadership academy training that we're, I've been involved okay. with, yes. I've been pushing that a little bit with the managers. That it's mm -hmm. okay. Don't be scared to right. check mm -hmm. in with your employee. Unless it's the manager that caused them to go on leave. <laughs> well, there's that, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move on. There's not a whole lot of that, though, Joe. <laughs> uh, all right, so getting to return on investment. Um, what this slide illustrates is cost savings based on fully denied or partially denied leaves. and what matrix has polled is employers, I think it's a total of 50 hospitals of varying sizes that they work with. Uh, the majority of them are around our employee number range, somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 employees. And what this illustrates is by narrowing, I would say, I actually don't like the wording here, but by moving people along in the process and, and working towards return to work, we're going to lower the, we're going to save dollars because they're going to be coming back to work and not out on leave. And we don't have all day, obviously, because we just have, right. we don't have all day. This right. is sort of illustrative right. rather than uh, practical, actual. And I think, you know, to Greg's earlier point about our ability to process in a timely fashion, it, it, while it's not usual, there were occasions where someone went on a leave, they're in a queue to be processed by us, they've already returned to work and the document hasn't been processed yet. Right. And so we're getting, basically I call things, if we can get a clean process and speed it up, we're going to get things processed in a more timely fashion, we're going to capture when there's an issue, we're going to identify that this really unfortunately doesn't qualify for a leave. Mm -hmm. If you want PTO, that's fine, that's a different issue. Right. But it really starts to capture that and push people into the right buckets, because as you know, with 19 different contracts and different allowances for various leaves, PTOs, it's difficult to manage them for one person, which is really what we had before, one and a half people. Very difficult. They as an organization that just does this, they can do it in a more effective and timely fashion uh, than, than we can do. And, and I would say that, you know, just the ability to send out a notice to an employee somewhere within the actual time frame that they're supposed to get to the notice yeah. is worth $140,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, because I, you know, this was a big part of my practice when I was in private practice because you know, I did labor and employment law. And in terms of claims of either you know, failure to provide you know, accommodation you know, when the leave of absence was requested as accommodation or discrimination or retaliation you know, under you know, either FEMLA or the ADA with regard to leaves of absence, more of the issues centered around the lack of the process steps that were necessary to ensure that the leave notice was given adequately. And in some instances that, you know, that the lack of a leave notice was given, you know, meaning that the person was not eligible for a leave or something along those lines. So just having a structure which handles the, you know, notice to us, the notice to the employee in and of itself, you know, creates, you know, just eliminates a substantial part of the exposure that, you know, because employees are going to be absent, you know, we cannot stop that. You know, the question is whether, you know, how well we can manage it, so. Well, it would seem to be good for us also for collecting 
data like this. Right. Or just for all of them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So any okay. other questions? Any questions? Yeah. No, I think it's good? great. It, this doesn't, because it doesn't affect workers' comp, I'm trying to go back to my dashboard, but my computer's not working. This isn't going to help our day's loss no. at all, because it's no, not dealing with that at all. No, right? separate. I think it's great, though. I really do. Yeah. From personal experience, what Mike's talking about, I know employers, because deep down in the organization, the manager doesn't know what they're supposed yeah. to do, and that can lead to all sorts of problems. So that's great. Yeah. Thanks, Greg. Greg's team has done an excellent job of, of implementing this. They had to shift all existing leaves over and did a really good job of that transition. So it was a heavy lift in there. I really Thanks appreciate the work his team has done. Greg had a nice holiday season the transition. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thank appreciate you. it. And so uh, next up is Lisa Marie May. Um, when uh, Tracy and I were talking about the agenda, um, I think a lot of things come up in the finance committee that actually have implications for employees. And um, we just wanted to give you some sense of background before you're in finance committee and go into the budgeting process around the controls that are going to be in place um, to prevent overhiring, to make sure we stay in budget. And so you're not just hearing about it if you're on the finance committee or, or you're hearing when we do the budget, this is how we control it. We want to give you an understanding of it. The, the, the deck's a little long, so Lisa Marie can skip pages here and there where it's going to the system as she sees fit, but obviously feel free to ask questions as well. Good evening. Thank you. So we, oh, okay, thank you. And I just have a couple slides. And again, this is over the FTE committee approval process. And uh, we uh, implemented a, oh, I guess this will work. <laughs> so we um, set up a structured process to seek the um, approval for replacement of FTEs and new FTEs. And this process includes FTE approval group that will meet weekly to review um, the lead, um, the, the FTEs that leaders around the system submit for posting. Um, this process will allow our organization to assure sound fiscal management and accountability related to expenses associated with the FTEs. Um, and the intent is not to slow down the posting process, but it really ensures that um, we're staying within budget and to look at ways to be more efficient with our when our volumes are down. And there is an algorithm that uh, each of the uh, requesting uh, leaders will need to follow as part of the process. And I won't go through that in detail here, if that's okay. But there is, of course, you can see the different types of what um, process they need to follow. The, the only thing I add, least me here, is productivity uh, is basically based on budget volumes, mm -hmm. right? And so volumes go up and down, that's the flex part. Uh, and also looking at what's called Action Ally, which is the implementation to look at the market. What do like organizations do? How many FTEs do they have? And what's the 50th percentile of that? And if we're above that, that's really what we're talking about when we look at the market. Yeah. So what, what I see here, the FTE may not be replaced if it's um, that particular um, division or, or, or area is so I would say three three big buckets. One is if you're over budget, we want to know why, and maybe we're not getting the approval. If even if you're in budget, but you're below 100% productivity, we want to understand why. And even if you're in budget and you're 100% productivity, but your benchmark, you got you're at the 75th percentile rather than the 50th percentile, meaning you have 25% 
you know, 25th percentile higher in terms of staffing for a like unit in another facility, we want to talk to you there as well because we're identifying this potential improvement opportunity that you don't need to staff to such a level, even if through a budgeting process we approve this number of FTEs. So on an ongoing basis, it, it looks for process improvement and really getting the managers to assess, yes, I got a budget for this, do I really need it? Can I do things in an alternative way that would be more effective for the organization rather than adding more FTEs? And so um, you can skip the next slide, although it, because it's great to see we have the leadership on this, but mm -hmm. do, does each request go through the, uh, the chief, whoever, the, before it comes to the committee? Yes. Okay, so then that person, the CRO, for example, would present it to the committee and say, Okay. So we're not undermining, it's very important that we don't right. undermine that management. They're responsible for approving only if it falls outside and they believe they still need it, do they come forth. Okay. okay. So Dave Cox might say, well, that's great to one of his managers, but we're not going to... Yes, okay. that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'll go ahead and skip if it's okay with everyone. Okay. And then do, this is the uh, last slide because the rest is just the process around how to go into FC. And so this is just the scheduling process. And so the manager and director will submit their FTE request um, through our position manager, which is our applicant tracking system. And then the manager director determines the FTE, um, the FTE year to date productivity percentages um, in the FC's productivity application. It seems like a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, manager director then enters the productivity metrics in our notes section. and. Um, in our position manager and then targeted benchmark met metrics. And then the FTE request meets criteria for the FTE review committee. Um, then we will again schedule them to come in and present the, the data and their justification of why they're requesting this FTE. A, a question, mm -hmm. would this be able to prevent a situation where, I don't know that it happens in, in healthcare as much, but a department gets kind of bloated in size and boy we just have a lot of people not sure we really need all those folks somebody retires somebody leaves does this stop us from hiring unnecessary FTEs as well as evaluating the criteria for a new hire with that it goes both ways that's right? the goal yes okay that's correct mm -hmm. So not just for replacement, it could be a new hire, it could be a replacement. Okay. The, the, just the fact that we're in the budget in a particular area doesn't mean we should yeah. hire people. Mm -hmm. And obviously in healthcare in particular, uh, we have large flexible budgets as opposed to fixed. So HR is a fixed budget. I assessed and worked with my colleagues in the department, then we get an approval, I need 60 people, whatever the number is. And we're fixed for the year. Once you hire them, they're either, they're either already here or you're hiring new people, that's it. In healthcare, you've got a massive flex. You know, RED is full right now because of the flu, the ICU is full. You need to flex up because we need to go above what was originally budgeted because the budget was an estimate. And so now we flex up. We have a period in the summer where there's no flu, we have a lot of beds empty, not that it happens too often here at Highland, and you need to flex down below what the budget was because you simply don't need staff here. And so having that flexible piece in there matters, but for the fixed budgets, the fact that you budgeted for it doesn't mean you need it. Things change. And what we're really wanting to do is really reflect on the managers, make another assessment here. Do you still need this? Are there other ways to get it done? We're asking you to consider that before you move forward and hire this person. 
and work with your leader to ensure that we really need to move forward with this because we know in some areas when we look at not so much the productivity but the benchmark that we're above the 50th in some areas we're at the 75th and above why are we at that is it our patient population therefore in fact we can't do anything or is there something where we could really adjust and get ourselves down to the 50th or below and that's really what we're trying to achieve um, and to that point um, that we just heard about matrix so say i mean matrix is relatively small um, but if we signed a large contract somewhere between matrix and epic um, and it was in HR. You said that you were, you're budgeting for the year, but it, if Matrix was um, a large contract that um, took over a, you know, the duties of many of your employees, then you would, it would show up in the committee, it would show up in the Matrix that you're not at 100%? Uh, no, that, that wouldn't, because the, con the contract purchase services are separate and distinct from this. That would really be a budgetary issue. You know, I may in budget for a purchase service, and then what? What am I doing in terms of FTEs? But would it? But would you be able to move to fill positions after that contract? Somehow, it would be apparent that those positions, although it's still not in the, um, somehow it would be apparent that that your work in your particular department had changed or been reduced. Yeah, I mean, and I would plan for that in the budgetary process. If we outsource work and we think we can reduce the staff, we do so. And we build that into the budget, not to replace it. And part of your contract, too, is to justify your contract. You're going to say that you're not going to spend that. Is Paula out two positions? Yeah. 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 And so what I really wanted to do with this, or I asked Lisa Marie to present it, because her team's doing most of the work around this with the finance department, is that we're putting much stronger control in place. We've had this in the past. Um, you know, we don't have a single system that magically does this, unfortunately. Uh, some systems, when you put, implement PeopleSoft or somewhere, they have position control built in. The problem with that sort of position control is, it is so granular that the back-end work requires multiple people to manage it. So you would say, one nurse in department one, 1.0 FTE. If I now want two half-time nurses or one, and it's, or I now have to cancel the first position within all the financial systems and then recreate two new positions. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge burden. You, you typically end up with two or three people managing that process. Mm -hmm. our, our system doesn't do that. It's not as limited as that. But managers are expected to go and move money. So we recently are moving uh, what was a previous management position, uh, director role, into two frontline staff members because I think we can provide better service that way. We eliminate the one, we create the two, I have to find the dollars from somewhere else to, to net out the, the money, and only when we have done that can I now go and hire those two positions. And so we're forcing that sort of rigor on the managers, and we've had some of it in place before, but it's been looser than we think it should be, and we think this tightening up is going to really help bring uh, tightening to our fiscal management going forward. Great. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Marie. Absolutely. Thank you. And then uh, I looked at the application. You know, that I like the way if this is what you give to the departments, to the managers, to see. Yes. yes. Yeah, and that seems very, um, very easy to follow. Yeah, and so the slides are nice, and they can work their way through. At least we worked on this, and then did some partnership with the finance to make sure it was clear. <laughs> <laughs> Oracle does have position control. 
going to skip through this. Well, one version of Oracle has position control. Obviously, not your version. Okay, so um, the last part I'm going to go through, that uh, I'm going to go through tonight, so that Trustee Jensen can, in fact, make the Warriors game, is uh, I wanted to sort of give you some sense uh, around what we're doing around for EHR hiring. I have a lot of questions on this idea. And so you've heard a lot in finance, if you're in the finance committee, a lot in full committee about EHR and, and what we're trying to do. There are obviously implications from a staffing perspective and work that needs to go into that. And so I think for everyone, and you may recall this from the very first presentation, we thought total cost of ownership was around 250 million. We probably required 150 net new FTEs to manage it. Uh, Ed, uh, Bob Kenyon, and Katya have done a lot of work with Epic, and we that number's come down to around the 80 to 90 people. And so, and we think most of those people can come from inside the organization. Uh, and so that will mean some backfill, but not everyone will be backfilled. And that's some of the work that Ed and Epic and other people have done to reduce that total cost of ownership in identifying areas where we will move individuals across on the Epic project and that we won't in fact backfill them. We won't do improvements on an existing clinical system because within 18 months of the start, they will be retired. And so it will become a little hairy towards the end of it, but that's natural for this sort of implementation. But by doing this, we think we better serve our own employees instead of going outside and hiring people with epic experience, that we focus on our internal employees, get them trained in, uh, on epic in Wisconsin, and then have them work in our systems. They understand our culture better, they understand the organization better, and we think this is just a better fit for AHS and, and where we're trying to get to. Um, there'll be a number of people that will move from IT uh, positions right now onto the Epic platform, and then we will stop development work. So if it's, for example, a team of two people, maybe one moves onto the Epic project, the other person just works on maintenance mode. We keep the system alive until such time that it gets retired. That means the big projects just simply don't occur. We have to put them in a parking lot and say, Epic's going to deal with that, even though it'll take 18 months. We, you know, generally, it's very crude words said, but we just have to suck it up. We need to accept that we're going to go through a tough period because at the end of it, we're going to have this Cadillac system that really allows us to do what we need to do for patient care, and it requires sacrifice. And that sacrifice is we don't do improvements unless we absolutely need to. Would you remind us, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, just remind us, when do you think the switch will turn on for Epic? I have to, we're looking about 18 months after okay. after we kick it off. It's a significant lift yep. in terms of building. Um, you know, most of, a lot of, not most of it, a lot of it's about us building the, the yeah. bandwidth internally yeah. and then slowly building process flow. The, the actual Epic itself is actually probably the least expensive part of the project overall and the least time consuming. It's about building workflows and process flows and transitioning everything from where it is today into the system. Epic comes as a box like Oracle does or Lawson does. It's really a box and you decide how you're going to build it. And as you build it, that's really what starts to take up the time. Tony, is the first bullet been accomplished already? Um, the, there's been an assessment of what we're going to stop. We have a, an IT steering committee, and uh, that steering committee has been discussed in detail that we're going to slow down work. As to each and every project that's not going to happen, I think that work's ongoing, and I think it will continue because requests will still come up. I still have requests that I'm going to put in, even though we're doing Epic, 
around uh, poten potentially payroll or Lawson, and then we'll have to decide that resource is already dedicated to Epic, you, you can't have them, and we have to wait. And so we believe um, that in the aggregate, we can do this, and Ed has worked with his team to start identifying things that can't go, and there are, there are at least three systems that I can recall where we've decided those are not being implemented. Epic will take care of it. It's a wait, but we're going to wait and not do that work. And, and, you know, I would point out that this was actually one of the more critical determinations of the, the entire EHR project. I think you may recall that we did bring an outside counselor to assist us in this process, and I think that if there was one concern that was more, um, more than a mild concern that he had about our approach to this, was looking at the list of current and scheduled IT projects as we we're about to embark on this. And if there was one thing that he was quite adamant in terms of advice to us going forward is that we needed to do something to pair that list or eliminate most of that list. And so that's you know, some of the work that Tony's talking about. And not only eliminate what was there on the list, but then maintain the attitude of not adding projects or taking on additional thing until the other project was done. So that was substantial in terms of getting us to a point where we are prepared to be successful for the project. Quick question. Yeah. Um, that, back to this scenario, we've got two people in the unit. One's going to go work on Epic, one stays behind. Yeah. That one who goes to work on Epic, they're going to be locked in working on Epic long term. The one who's left behind, uh, is there a job security threat there? Is that going to create internal competition to work on Epic? Uh, potentially. Okay. It depends. It's it's, and I'll go through. I'll get to a slide towards the end. We'll talk a little bit about that, or I will talk around it on the final slide. Uh, again, where possible, we're going to move internal people, and some of them are going to be clinical, some of them are going to be non-clinical. They're going to be IT. There might be revenue cycle people who are going to build. The, the question really is: Is it? Um, and this is some of the complexity that we'll deal with. Is it a job assignment or a work assignment, or are you fully moved over to what is considered an epic analyst job? And that line is not absolutely clear. And that's some of the work we're going through right now in terms of working out the classifications. Um, well, we can't identify an internal person. They don't have the skill set. Then we'll go outside. When we go outside, we're going to go local, wherever possible. We want people, again, within the county or as close to it as we possibly can. Uh, to execute on the strategy, we're bringing on uh, a headshot project manager. Uh, the reason for that is even although these 80 to 90 people, a fair portion of them be internal, there are a lot of moving parts here. We've got to get the job descriptions for each and every job. We've got to get the compensation and classification done. Representation, uh, as you know, 92% of our employees are represented. There's no reason to believe that a number of these jobs won't be represented. Uh, you, we have an issue of perhaps a nurse deciding, I want to go work on the Epic project in IT, but I'll only go if you maintain my seniority. So that would be a meeting confer with the union and have a discussion. I think we'll be very open to it, and I'm not worried by them, but that's why we need someone to effectively on the HR side work with Katja, who's the director of the EHR implementation, and work with that as a single point of contact. And then the project manager works with our comp department, works with labor relations, works with recruitment, make sure that everything is moving in the right way, because otherwise we could quickly fall behind in terms of the place we need to meet. Is that an existing employee? It is not. If someone's going to come on, they are going to be term limited. Uh, their employment will end uh, probably about six months after they start. They're all over six months. But if they're for the project, then it's end. If they're here and there's something else, great. If there's not, they go away, and that way we don't keep the, the costs after the project. 
Tony, when somebody doesn't get assigned to Epic, uh, is that kind of the death knell of that employee not being able to then, you know, kind yeah, of be used uh, no, in well, some other way? No, uh, because other systems will continue to be here, and the Epic project is not going to be the only project that occurs in the organization. So some people are going to work on laws, and that's the HR system and the financial system. It will still be the finance and HR system, as far as I can tell, three, four years from now. And there will be other add-on systems. Epic will not eliminate every single clinical system, mm -hmm. right? What I would also tell you is a number of the IT department currently are not located locally uh, or are consultants. And so there's significant bandwidth there for us to meet this with existing employees in a beneficial way to the organization. Yeah. So that's where we think we're really going with that. Um, so major steps, board approval. I mean, this is, the, this is the key for us because we're all waiting. Everyone's queued up, the negotiations have occurred. We're waiting to start moving these internal people and have discussions once we have the job descriptions, uh, meet and confer, which we don't want to do preemptively, so we don't seem to be negotiating in bad faith. And as soon as the board moves on this, uh, whether it's uh, at the 25th meeting or after the joint session, that will allow us to really get moving quickly on this. We've got everything lined up, but we need that approval to move forward. Uh, the project manager we think we'll have on board this month, uh, the end of the month. Uh, we'll do the, the, we've already done a lot of work, uh, Paul's team and Jim Devoto has done a lot of work on the classifications. The meeting confers will be set up in February and we're already working to get those lined up. Uh, transfer of in, internal employees, we want employees by early March. And so we want to move quickly as soon as everything's approved. Um, and external hires will be hired to fill in the gaps. And again, we don't know where those are until we've dealt with the internal employees. We'll backfill where necessary, particularly with clinical roles. And so I'd expect some nurses, some pharmacists, and some clinical lab scientists to move into these jobs. They'll need to be backfilled, but the numbers are relatively small overall. Maybe four nurses in total across the system. That's not really going to hit heavily on our on the, on the recruitment for those areas, particularly because they're not all going to come out from a single department. So I don't see that as a, a massive operational issue. We are going to have to backfill those roles, but I don't see this as damaging those departments in a really meaningful way. Um, the risks, uh, again, the board approval, right? That's, that's the key thing. And once that's done, that will allow us to move forward. Uh, there are two available options for training. One's in March and one's in May. Uh, and so EPIC has those dates. Their requirement is to have 80% of the staff, so 80% of the around 90 people need to be identified to go out to Wisconsin. That's an epic rule, and so that's the, that's the risk. So the quicker we get started, the, the more likely we are to hit the March deadline. If not, then we're looking at May, and we, we can talk to Epic about staggering it, and Ed, uh, Bobby Kenny is working on that right now. But that's an issue for us, because you want most people trained so you can start the build. Um, Internal employees being willing to switch careers, particularly if it means going from a rep to an unrepresented position, if it means I've been a nurse for 10 years, but I really want to try this and I need some safety net. So, so there's some of the things we want to work through with the employees and with the unions to create the best environment to allow people to take this opportunity and feel safe enough that if it doesn't work out, I, ha I can go back to my former role as a nurse or a pharmacist. This I thought would work, but it didn't. So we're trying to create an environment where that's going to be possible for employees. But that's a risk 
people just being afraid. Um, and then just filling the backfill for clinical positions. Again, uh, is really the nurse I'm not so worried about, pharmacy and a couple of others, then, then we might have more challenges filling them quickly. But again, I think we can get that done. Um, this is just to give you a headline. We think 46 will be intern, 46 of these jobs will be internal, 37 uh, will be external because we, don't, we haven't been able to identify a skill set existing internal that could fill those roles. We're going to keep working on that. There are multiples of all of these positions um, and we've identified in some instances people in departments by name that we think can fill the role. They haven't determined that they're going to do that. There's been no job posting yet, but we're actually down to that granularity. So we're ready to move as quickly as we possibly can after, after approval is given. <coughs> so these are the job titles that will be needed. That's that's correct. And so we need a physician. They'll give up maybe 60% of their clinical time and act on this project, but they'll still provide clinical time. Is your time. job the HR project manager on this No. Because these, the, these are the EPIC specific. Okay. He's a project manager who's going to work for us and will be gone long before the EPIC project's anywhere close to finished. Whereas these positions are permanent, essentially. I mean, obviously yeah. there's some flex. Yeah. yeah, there's going to be some flex. But these are the roles that don't exist today that have been created for the EPIC implementation. And there are multiple of these, you know, the 46 internal and the 37 external. There will also, they'll also be champions in departments like the physician champion where it will be an assignment of work and not an exact transfer from existing role to an entirely epic based role so a revenue cycle supervisor may do ten, dedicate 10 or 15 percent to helping build the revenue cycle flow that's a work assignment you may need someone with those revenue cycle skills to become 100 percent epic and they will move over and that will be their new job and so there's going to be a mix of those these are the epic specific jobs as opposed to the job assignments what does healthy planning mean to population health? It's, it's a module in EPIC. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I, I couldn't tell you. And that will have to verify with IT. <laughs> okay. uh, just like principals train at ASAP, we have to validate exactly what that's referring to. But <laughs> immediately. Optime is a particular part of EPIC uh, that I'm familiar with. The BI developers is fine. LIS analysts and LIS coordinators are very familiar titles. Uh, and so they're just separate subparts of the system that need to be developed. So um, the 46 internal candidates, yeah. that means we have people inside that will fit those. We believe so, yes. And I'm going to assume those people inside are also local versus those employees we have that are somewhere out there. Yes. Right? Yeah. So those somewhere out there people might lose their employment with us. I think those somewhere out there employees. Because mm -hmm. we don't yeah. need them under Epic, right? Um, those employees may have a choice to move here locally okay. if it's a better fit um, or to stay where they are supporting a system and we'll be making an assessment as EPIC reaches its conclusion of implementation exactly what we'll do with them. Because during that period of time, people on the EPIC project will still likely leave, retire, choose sure. to do something else. And then we, we would make the determination at that time. I think the goal would be to be locally focused and where they're consultants, that gives us the greatest flex because right. they just go away. Right. Where they're not locally based, that's a discussion with the individuals about whether they want to be here um, right. and focused or whether over a longer period of time we would look at an alternative. And we know when you, some people will not work here, whether it's here or remotely here, yeah. with the implementation of Epic. It would be great if the, if the people who already are here here physically 
will get those 46 as opposed to someone in wherever. Yes. You know, we'll be able. Yeah, you know what I did. I'm really great. Uh, and then, of course, the 37 external you're hoping are going to be locally. Ideally, you know, with, with so many um, healthcare systems using ECPIT locally, we think most of the people oh, right. keep it locally. I mean, ev everyone yeah. from Kaiser to Sutter to Stanford to Packard, they all use EPIC, and so our hope is to bring them from as close as possible. Well, I imagine we'll hear more about EPIC um, and new positions. And, oh, and, of course, the key board approval of the project. Yeah. Right. And that is it. Thank you. Do we have a closed session? Yes, yeah, we have a brief yes. closed session. We have a closed session, um, so that uh, I'm going to adjourn our open session, and we will adjourn to closed session. Okay, and the closed session now will be for consideration of a matter of a pending litigation in the government code section 54947.98. So uh, what I would suggest is why don't we just stay here? This will not take long. And by the time we all got down today, I'll be less than two minutes. That would be fine. Um, and we promise not to delay you guys getting out. There was no action taken in closed session, and the meeting adjourned, the HR committee meeting adjourned at 645. Have a great time with the game.